do something, I needed to have um, fellow artists. It's like when I went looking for studio space in 1970, um, I wanted 500 square feet and nobody would talk to me. Um, but if the whole floor was, let's say, uh, a thousand square feet, and I had 40 friends or 50 friends, yeah. I could take the whole space. Yeah. So, um, you know, this idea that, um, uh, uh, and that was the reason that I focused on the cooperative, had nothing to do with the artwork that people did, like a lot of cooperatives do. Yeah. It was really focused on uh, workspace. Well, we should probably actually record this, so. Okay. So all you have to do is just hold the mic up. Um, so uh, I want to say thank you, first and foremost, George, for taking your time out today to interview me, or to have me interview you. Sure. <laughs> uh, in this nice, beautiful atrium. Yeah, it's atrium, an atrium right? or, or courtyard. I like to call it indoor courtyard. But, yeah. Uh, here at the National uh, Portrait Gallery. Um and I, I wanted to interview you basically for uh, your your story, as we spoke earlier in the coffee shop, about uh, your origins of, of what basically keeps you doing what you're doing and championing uh, uh, for artists and for the arts in general. So um, it, what, what was the, the, the key moment for you to, in doing that? Uh, uh, what made you kind of just have the light bulb go off? Was it like you just spoke earlier about something out of a practical need of finding like artist space or well as a matter of fact it, uh, it, it's it's really a process um, a couple of things uh, one uh, when I decided to I came here in 65 and in 1970 I wanted to start doing my uh, artwork again and I said well maybe I need to join uh, uh, an artist cooperative yeah. and I was living in Adams Morgan at the time and there was a uh, artist cooperative called Madam's Organ yeah. and it was uh, this was before the bar that's down right. there now and um, it was mostly a group of dissident students from the Corcoran and um, I worked with them for about two years but the anarchy just got too much for me yeah. and a group of us went off and created our own uh, uh, artist cooperative but it was an artist cooperative that only focused on workspace and the reason for that is is that uh, when I went to find 500 square feet for studio space the reality was is that none of the people that had property wanted to talk about cutting out 500 square feet yeah. uh, for a studio uh, but if the floor plate for the building was, let's say, um, uh, uh, 500 square feet, um, and uh, I went and had 40 friends, and I went back and said, all right, I'll take the whole floor, yeah. they would talk to me. <laughs> and that's really how uh, a salon got started uh, uh, in terms of, of, putting, of putting space together. Um, and, you know, at one time, uh, a salon had uh, about 90,000 square feet in three locations. It's interesting, uh, and they were all, all those spaces were designed as temporary spaces. Yeah. They were never designed to be permanent. 
because when you, you look at Washington, um, there's no industrial base. Uh, and as a result, um, uh, available vacant space is very, very uh, limited. Uh, and so what what I did is that looking around, I said, well, where is there space that could be utilized? Yeah. And that's the whole idea of temporary space. Uh, and two of the projects that were designed as temporary space are still in the hands of artists today, almost 40 years later. Wow. The first project we had was the Jackson School in Georgetown, yeah. where we converted a, uh, an elementary school into an art center. Uh, and then the second was um, uh, the Tacoma Metro Art Center. Um, uh, and uh, it's interesting because what happened with the Jackson School is that um, the artists that were there uh, wanted to manage it themselves. So actually, we had a lease with the school board for the building. We actually signed the lease over to the artist when huh. we were on the second lease. That's, and, that's pretty awesome. And they created their own 501c3. Um, the Tacoma Metro Art Center uh, uh, still exists uh, under the A-Salon structure. I mean, the, the A-Salon entity right. uh, in the, w with regards to the city and the 501c3. But they now call themselves uh, DC Art Studios. Oh. Um, uh, but they basically do the same thing. Uh, it's artist, uh, artist workspace. So... That's how I got into this whole issue about about space, and um, uh, it was also uh, a, a good experience in that so many of the artist cooperatives um, wanted to behave like a gallery and yeah. wanted to make a decision: well, what kind of art do you do? And um, uh, a salon. Uh, we didn't care. Yeah. We just cared whether or not you could pay the rent. <laughs> um, and it, it created a whole new attitude in terms of how you work with your fellow artists. Um, um, there was no competition. Um, uh, it just focused on uh, whether or not you could pay the rent. Right. Um, and I think over the... It was through that that Artomatic got started because um, at the, uh, our offices were at the Tacoma Metro Art Center and I had a studio there yeah. as well. And um, our landlord, who, the, the building had been flipped three times. Um, it was, was originally the worldwide printing headquarters for the Seventh-day Adventist, oh. which is now out on 270. Yeah. Um, and the owner, uh, Doug Jamal, um, uh, came to me one day and said, George, I've got this great space um, that would be great for artists. And I said, Doug, we're having enough trouble managing what we've got, but I said I could probably get some artists interested in the space. Well, give me the keys, and I'll set, do some tours and get people interested. And so he gave me the keys, and then every Saturday for about two months, three months, uh, I was showing the space to anybody. It was all word of mouth. And, wait, uh, wait, wait, it was all word of mouth? Right. Wow. Yeah. 
Wow. And so, um, which really speaks to the pent-up um, um, uh, need yeah. uh, uh, for artists to be able to have their work seen and to be heard and to be experienced. And so um, uh, every Saturday it would give a tour. Um, and we wound up with 350 artists who wanted to exhibit uh, in the old Manhattan Laundry on Florida Avenue between 13th and 14th Street. And <clears throat> what happened is, is that we discovered um, that, hey, this is not a bad idea. And th the way the name came about is that one of the artists, because it was in an old laundry, right. uh, came up with the term art-o-matic. In fact, originally, it was art-o-matic. Yeah. Um, and after it became a brand, we just dropped the hyphens. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, the, the, I think the feeling was all volunteer. Um, uh, and the, the first Artomatic was uh, uh, just all visual artists. And also the visual artists know how to do an exhibit. They know how to invite their friends. Yep. Um, uh, and the fact that you get 350 of them together who are inviting their 50 friends um, uh, and doing their own installations, uh, it, 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 was a, it was an easy concept uh, to be able to grasp. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Artomatic was really driven in the first years, um, 99, 2000, 2002, and 2004, really by just a group of artists. Um, there was no organization. <clears throat> Although we did partner uh, starting in 2000, with the uh, Cultural Development Corporation. Yeah. Uh, they provided management support, which they got paid for. Um, and um, uh, in 2005, well, after 2004, we wound up with extra money. I think we had about $8,000. And we went to put it in a bank, and <clears throat> they said, well, what's your EIN number? <laughs> And we like, said, well, oh, we're not an organization. Yeah. Well, they said, okay, well, give us your Social Security number. We can put it under your Social Security number. And, of course, nobody wanted to yeah. put it under their Social Security number because then they'd have to explain all of that to IRS. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, uh, we said, well, maybe we need to create a 501c3. Um, I was... I guess I was opposed to the idea of creating another organization. Um, but um, we did that. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's how the organization got started. The other thing was that, um, you know, over a period of time, uh, we learned an awful lot about real estate, working with the <laughs> development community and so forth. Um, and it, it was it was on an interim basis. What happens is is that each year you did something new. Yeah. I often described Artomatic back then as a um, engineering project. <clears throat> you know, an engineer will build something and then they'll try it out and say, "Well, that doesn't quite work. We'll fix it." Yeah. Uh, and that's what would really you say to, about it today? If it was oh, I think it's the same thing. I mean, oh. uh, we always learn something from each event. Okay. But today, I mean, we've really we've really grown. In, in several respects. One, we're now licensing artists 
in other communities to create their own artematics, yeah. very much like TEDx is to TED. Yeah. Um, I also like to present it from an economic development point of view in that we're teaching artists to fish rather than fish for them. Right, um, right. And um, that's, uh, uh, you know, that, that's been, it's hard for artists to begin to understand that they can take control. Yeah, uh, that, and, that is true. Yeah. I speak to that, yeah. Because they, you know, a lot of a lot of artists don't realize that how much power they do have and control sure. they have in creating their own narratives and also controlling the narrative they put out, and um, also they're they're allowing their passion to show through. You know, some people right. get very rigid about that, and uh, it's like you said, it's like you know having events like with uh, you know out of a need because it's, it's a lot of this sounds like it was just became practical need. You yes. know, you had a demand that, you know, artists wanted to show work. And like with us, Alon, you know, you basically guys like, well, we're not really caring about only letting in uh, a sculptor or more. You're like, we'll let anyone come in as long as you help us support the space. Mm -hmm. And that was came out of a practical need. Right. And then, like you said, just with Artomatic, that was a, a, a need that you probably didn't realize you, you was going on that had to happen. And in fact... Artomatic happened because the space presented itself. Right. Um, and, you know, all right, we got this space and an opportunity to use it. What can we do with it? Yeah. And, and once again, it takes kind of a creative mind to figure out what can we do with it and keep it practical in that sense at the same right. time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, one of the things, though, too, is that uh, the skills... Because, uh, like I said uh, a moment ago, or, or earlier before we started talking, right. is that uh, I, I, I love your, your kind of take or philosophy on, like, your skills shift to making things happen. Right. And um, is this something that kind of came about, this, this approach came about over years, just from your ex personal experience or from some event that happened uh, in, in, your, in your life? Well, I think because we were able to separate the artwork that somebody does and their ability to pay rent. Um, we were also able to um, separate that from the individual. So in Artomatic, when we all got together, the question is, well, who knows something about marketing? Well, who knows something about uh, building partitions? Who knows something about volunteer management? And the reality was, is that the, all the artists that came together had a whole set of skills that had nothing to do with their art, but a set of skills that could make the event work. Yeah. So in today's world, um, I'm always looking at the skill set that people have. I assume that they want to show their art. And that's up to them. Right. <clears throat> I don't have to make any decisions about that. They do. Yeah. Um, uh, but their skill set is what makes automatic work. Yeah, that that is true. I mean, I'm seeing mm. firsthand. I mean, I've gone to some of the meetings. I've gone to uh, to automatic, and I've seen firsthand about that too. And, and the other thing I I've, I found uh, from my own experiences of, of with automatic and uh, what I've seen other artists do too is that how automatic has been able to kind of transform them. Because like they're using their skills, showing their work and other skills they probably didn't realize they had. But then after the afterwards, it's like kind of um, 
an afterglow that they have and it's helped transport them they've gotten more notice and i'm sure you have spoken to that and you've seen that with uh, artists um, who have kind of had uh, showing at automatic and then had a new or different career um, oh, oh absolutely yeah. uh, um, you know a couple of examples um, in 2000 <laughs> pardon me yeah. in 2002 one of the artists, a glass artist, um, uh, exhibited, uh, Tim Tate exhibited what he called Requiems. These were glass hearts. He had nine of them. Yeah. And um, we were in the old um, Heckinger building in Tenley Town, and he was in the basement, and um, which was kind of a strange place in that building. Um, and <laughs> but he chose it. <laughs> that's right. And... He had these requiems on a wall. He sold every one of them. Wow. He used that money to start the Washington Glass School. And you wow. know, I think I think those requiems back then in 2000 probably, I think he was selling them for about $150, $200. Yeah. Today, Tim has a national and international reputation in glass, and he's, his artwork is around 60000 a year. Wow. So... Um, one of the great things about automatics is to see people grow uh, and um, make things happen. Another one is a fellow by the name of Frank Warren. Uh, Frank exhibited in 2004. And Frank, um, uh, I, I saw him doing his installation. And he had these wires on, a, on the wall, out from the wall. And he was, uh, had postcards on them. Yeah. And I remember going by one day as he was doing the installation, and I said, Frank, what, what's going on? He says, well, I'm going to be asking people to put their secrets on a postcard and mail it to me. <laughs> um, and I said, well, okay. Yeah, cool. Uh, you right. know, and, uh, it was his gig. Yeah. Well, three months after Artomatic ended in 2004, Frank calls me up, and he says, George, I need an agent. Do you have, can you recommend an agent? And I said, Frank, you need an agent. <laughs> he says, yeah, Harper Collins wants to do a book. Um, and that became the very first, first uh, post-secret book that was done. And I think he's got six or eight um, uh, books already wow. uh, over the years. And so one of the things that Artomatic provided to him, because there were a lot of artists there, um, when people did the postcards... It was not just the secret, but they would do a collage on it. They would paint on it and stuff. And so that the uh, postcards, it wasn't just writing. The postcards became visual um, um, wow. uh, pieces of art, if you will. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, um, those are two examples. There, there are hundreds of others. Yeah, you could probably uh, s go all day. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it's... Uh, it, it's an opportunity to be seen, to be heard, and to be experienced. I often say that Artomatic is, is something that you've got to experience. I, I would concur with that. It is. It, it is a, um, a, a, a deluge of visual experience. And then, you know, over the years, you started adding other things, uh, right. other uh, art forms in there, um, and like with film and with uh, video as well as film, um, music, um, and also... We do workshops. Workshops. Yeah. You've developed workshops, yeah. too. I can't forget that. Yeah. And uh, you've done, like, uh, theater-like performances as well. Yes. Um, actually, in 2000, we actually had a theater production 
being done so that they could meet the requirement for 16 weeks so they could get into Helen Hayes Awards. Yeah. <laughs> but since then, we haven't, but since then we haven't had uh, much theater, although usually in our dramatic we have uh, stages, and what we're trying to do now is to get the, the literary community to look at those stages uh, as a place to do readings. Um, we do do... Uh, Poetry slams, um, but all of these are organized by people in that genre. Yeah, uh, not by the painters. No, not uh, by painters. Uh, yeah, I don't know if a painter would be able uh, to be a good uh, for instance, filter for for poetry. For instance, in the last Artomatic in 2017, we actually incubated a bookstore in Artomatic. This was a woman who wanted to start her own bookstore, and we suggested that you know she could have space on Artomatic. Uh, for that bookstore. She was creating a bookstore that focused on authors of color. Yeah. And she incubated the bookstore there, uh, which helped her kickstart uh, her her bookstore. So we're looking at doing more of those kinds of things. Um, because in essence, that, that's also true for visual artists. I mean, um, uh, uh, a visual artist, in a sense, is incubating themselves uh, in in Artomatic, an opportunity for their work to be seen, yeah, um, and 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 sold or other kinds of things happening as a result of their work. Yeah. So, <laughs> one thing that I uh, one thing that I also wanted to ask you about is uh, what do you mean about how does passion create permission? I, I wanted to uh, ex ask you about that. How you came well, up with that thought process, and, and what's that mean on a day-to-day -day level? Well, I think for for many for many artists, um, they're doing it uh, out of a passion. Yeah. Um, in other words, they're quite frankly, you know, many beginning artists are certainly not getting paid for it. Yeah. Um, and so they're doing it out of passion. And what happens is, is that then passion, in a sense, creates the permission for them to begin that work and to begin to explore that particular effort. Yeah. Huh. Oh, I was going to hold on a second. Yeah. <laughs> That's the beauty, though. I can always, I can always edit this. But okay. I guess it's getting lunchtime for the kids. Yeah. <clears throat> well, let's see here. So far... Uh, so what I'm going to do in post, I'm going to just do your bio in the introduction. So, sure. So that's why I need to take this with me. Yeah. Um, do you want to uh, bring up your your TEDx WDC? You want to talk about that? Sure. Um, uh, out of all of this work with Artomatic, um, I, I was also an officer in National Artist Equity which is a trade organization for visual artists. Right. And um, we're the ones that championed the uh, uh, Visual Artist Rights Act of 1990, um, uh, working with Senator Kennedy. And one of the things that, that I became aware of early on is that th there, there are a lot of structures that support the arts, whether it's an arts commission uh, or grants or other kinds of things. And, you know, I, I think that, that uh, over, the, over the years, uh, being able to um, 
participate in that uh, and to assist artists, uh, my, my fellow artists, um, also means that uh, I'm a great believer in a, in a rising tide raises all boats. Yeah. So I benefit from uh, the, um, uh, the success of other artists uh, uh, here in, in, in Washington. Um, where was I going with this? Um, oh, we were going to go with the, uh, 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 your TEDx. Oh, with, TEDx. Yeah. So um, the, the whole issue of creativity... Um, and I remember when the, uh, uh, Richard Florida's book came out uh, on the rise of the creative class, um, uh, I started going to conferences in Philadelphia, Toronto, Sarasota, uh, around the creative economy. And uh, I, I started going mainly because Florida had given us in the creative community uh, a larger vocabulary to talk about creativity. The other thing was is that I had to learn <clears throat> that creativity was more than a dancer or a sculptor or a painter or a musician. Yeah. Uh, and that the other thing was is that the creative process and the scientific process are basically the same. Yeah. Uh, um, I would not disagree with that. <laughs> and so as a result of that, I got uh, folks oh, from. Hold on a second. We'll, we'll let them pass. <laughs> oh. oh no! <laughs> you gotta love being in a in the atrium. Yeah. Well, go ahead. So as okay. you were saying, sorry. Um. So. Um, uh, at one of the conferences in Philadelphia, I got the executive director of the Washington, D.C. Economic Partnership uh, and the executive director of the D.C. Commission on Arts and Humanities to go with me to that conference. Oh, nice. <clears throat> and so as a result of that, they drank the Kool-Aid. <laughs> uh, and when they came back, they got together with uh, the director of Office of Planning in D.C. and did the very first study to identify uh, some clusters in the creative economy uh, here in Washington. Wow. Um, and so um, that started the dialogue in the city about our creative economy uh, here. Yeah. Um, the six clusters represented uh, something like 75,000 workers in the district. Um, and it, you know, it was limited to six clusters, but even today, it, it's more than that. Oh, and, wow. and part of going to these conferences also allowed me to broaden my own perspective about creativity. I remember listening to a presenter uh, at uh, the Philadelphia conference uh, who was the chief designer for the Mayo Clinic. And what he was doing was designing interface between patients and doctors. Wow. Um, and so, you know, uh, the, the range of people that are creative in, in society is really quite extensive. Um, and what you need to do is to begin to wrap your head around that. It took me a while. I mean, I didn't come <clears throat> at this full blown. Yeah. Uh, I, had, I had to experience it. And I guess that's partly because I'm an experiential learner. I, um, and um, as a result of that, I wound up creating 
the Center for the Creative Economy here in D.C., um, to become an advocate. Uh, because I realized from my own experience that education was a critical part of people understanding the creative economy. Yeah, um, I, I and agree so, with that. Yeah. And, and so we've done a, a variety of, of things in, in education. We uh, hosted a TEDx event, um, uh, uh, which was primarily presenters on the creative economy in D.C. We're now working on one around food, a TEDx event. <laughs> around food and um, uh, we also uh, one of the things that we realized uh, I realized early on is that there were creative economy studies being done around the country yeah but they really th there was no connection between everybody um, so I started working with some folks and we organized two summits, national summits, of bringing together people who have done creative economy studies around, around the U.S. And we've created a library of creative economy studies done in the U.S. Oh, that's cool. Um, and the, we partnered with the Inter-American Development Bank yeah. uh, for the uh, summits. They became our host. Um, and... You know, these were all done on shoestrings, yeah. uh, um, but it worked. Well, no shoestrings and passion, you know, like you said, because exactly. it, it, it does boil down to that passion, that, that, that need, that desire to help. But um, I kind of want to uh, uh, start wrapping up. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, George, what, what keeps you championing this stuff? How and why? Well, I guess I'm an organizer at heart, um, but also if you go back to my comment about a rising tide raises all boats, right? Um, the success of artists in D.C. is is, I mean, I I take great pleasure in the fact that 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 happens, and uh, <laughs> pardon me. Oh, you're fine. Like I said, I I can edit this. Don't worry. Okay. So, <laughs> and so, you know. I, I continue to do it because I think it it's impactful. Um, uh, it benefits me in terms of my experience and knowledge, um, and it helps my fellow artists. Yeah. <coughs> well, that that's I, I like. Yeah, that's a pretty good way of summing it up. Why you do it and you champion what you do. So uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you, uh, is I call this the I always ask everyone this. Um, is there anything I should be asking you that I didn't ask? No, other than, than I think that, that, you know, because living in D.C., space for creatives is, is, is a premium. Yeah. And we need to be innovative in how we begin to look at, at and secure space uh, 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 for uh, the creative community. Um, and I just think that <coughs> that's given us a, a unique perspective here in D.C. Um, and it really is not like any other city. No. Uh, uh, and so we have to be uh, 
we have to be innovative. We have to take control as creatives and make these things happen. That's true. Well, George, thank you again for taking your time. You're and, welcome. Um, thank you. And I'm going to go ahead and do this.